Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to part two of this episode of Move. Jamie, are you ready? Dude, I'm always ready. I'm strapped in. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be inspired, which is our word that we love to use. Let's do this. Part two of Move. You worked at the John Lewis Partnership for three decades. Um, and you were so engrossed in that kind of culture and understanding of what it does. How then as an individual do you go from, again, this word culture, go from one culture in a business to an next? And how do you adapt? And how do you change as an individual? And how important is being able to change as an individual and in business? So I think probably the best way I can explain that is that Around the year 2000, Waitrose decided that for the first time in its history, it would acquire a package of shops from a competitor. And we had great debates about whether buying those 13 shops was going to change our culture and how it might change our culture. Can we ask who that was? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can ask, but I can't tell you. That's the second no we've had on a podcast. (laughs) So what we decided to do ultimately was to take the 13 shops on. We accepted that there would be a culture risk, but we thought that the opportunity to grow at that point by adding that number of shops was too good an opportunity to miss. So there was one shop south of London, and I won't say where. Ah, that lovely Tesco's place. (laughs) (laughs) And um, uh, we took the shop over. We spent one and a half million pounds refurbishing the shop. Uh, The uh, uh, staff who were there before were all taken on by Waitrose under Tupi rules. You have to take on existing staff. And so what we did is that the managers who'd been there before, we sent to other Waitrose branches so they could start to understand the culture. And we put in uh, a management team of trained Waitrose managers and a few supervisors as well, but not many. And uh, their job was to train the staff, uh, now partners, Waitrose partners, over three weeks uh, in how our systems work, but also about the culture of the organisation. The night before opening, somebody graffitied in the gents loose in the shop. And so the branch manager called in a local painter and decorator who overnight repainted the gents loose. And then the manager put a note on the table in the staff dining room that said that, He'd brought in this painter and decorator to cover over this graffiti. It had cost £200, and now there would be £200 less in the annual uh, bonus. And overnight, all of that kind of petty nonsense stopped. About a week uh, later, one of the cashiers came up to the manager and said, "Um, do you know Florence has phoned in sick? Uh, She's not really sick. She's gone to see her sister in Brighton. But I don't think it's fair now that we work in a business where we're all responsible and we're all co-owners and I'm working and she's gone off. So when she came back in, the manager saw her and said, look, I've heard this story. It is very different now. Um, Can you please not do that again? 
And that was too much for Florence. She, she left the business because she didn't want to be held responsible in that way. But what was really notable for me was that in sort of one week of trading and four weeks of taking it over, there was a sense that it was different. There was a different standard. I think it's the same when you go to somewhere and you walk around a building. If you smile at everybody and say hello, within time, people start smiling at you and saying hello. You set the culture. If you shake somebody's hand every time you see them, they get used to shaking your hand every time you see them. So you epitomize the culture that you want in your organization. If you sit at your desk and don't talk to anybody, that'll be the culture. Everybody will sit at their desk and they won't talk to anybody. I, I think that, sorry, Ed, I thought I'm, I've jumped ahead of you. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I, uh, it's so interesting you say about that because I couldn't agree more. I think that... Um, you know, there's always that, the saying that I've always lived by is be nice to everyone on the way up because you never know who you meet on the way down. And that kind of thing of just being kind and nice and charming and energetic and all those things actually then rub off on everyone else. Um, and that's what I very much had in a, when our rugby team was at school and I played a lot of rugby, I was very much the captain and I sort of gave over that energy and the team became this very excitable, very sort of energetic team. Um, and it's amazing because Ed and I go back to this book that actually Ed told me to read, which is called Shoe Dog, which is Phil Knight, the, uh, the founder of Nike, and he talks about his story leading up. And when he set up the first company, which is called Blue Ribbon, and he started putting up stores around the place, he had the very same thing about culture. He only hired people, store managers, who knew exactly what the brand was about. Because if he had put someone else different in there, then the culture would have been different and it would have been run differently. The thing which I find about the retail space at the moment is that a lot of people are worried about retail because you've got the big tech companies coming in like the Amazons, you know, whatever it is, uh, sort of taking over the market. As a retail company, how do you adapt? And this goes back to sort of adapting within business. You know, how does one adapt to those situations in life? Uh, well, there are several things that, that create culture or, or economic change for businesses. Um, uh, technology um, and the consumer are the main two when it comes to retailing. And so if you were to take um, uh, take the railways and the canals, people used to use the canals to transport goods. Uh, the railways came in and people stopped using the canals because the railways were quicker and more efficient. And so the canals had to find a different use and they bit by bit fell into disrepair and now they're reinvented as a leisure thing to do. Similarly, the railways boomed and then with the beaching cuts after the Second World War uh, were cut back because the road came in and road haulage became quicker and easier. And so what you find is that there are evolutions that happen in all sectors because of technology and how consumers respond. What's happening now in retailing is that the internet is giving people a different option to shop. So you still have all the capacity you used to have in physical shops when being close to your customer and having a physical shop was the most important thing, to now a customer having access to millions of websites selling hundreds of millions of things which are instantly accessible and things can be delivered to their doorstep very, very quickly. And so the capacity 
of retail has increased exponentially over the last 10 years. Now, that provides a real difficulty if you've got a physical shop and you find that 20 or 30% of your customers who shop with you in the shop are now shopping online because you've still got the same rents, you've still got the same rates, you've still got the same heating bills, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a real conundrum for the shops about how efficient can you make a shop to still make it profitable? Or do you have to totally reinvent a shop for a modern age? So Apple shops are very different to how you might have seen a traditional electrical shop. There are tutorials, there are repairs, and of course there's a degree of sales. And so all retailers now, legacy, large retailers, are going through this conundrum of how do we embrace this new technology which our customers want, but at the same time, how do we make sure that all this space we've got is profitable space? Do we have to close it? Do we have to reinvent it? And my view is that we're still at the foothills of this change. I think there's another decade or more to go as retail reinvents itself. You've seen the same in cinemas. When I was growing up in Crew in the 1960s and 70s, there were two cinemas, very busy. Uh, they both closed in the 80s. Why? Because blockbuster opened and um, video shops, and now, of course, you have Netflix and whatever. But what's been fascinating is that cinemas have reinvented themselves and people are going again. Why? Because it's a night out. Why? Because they've got bars. Why? Because the food's better. Why? Because the experience you get with the surround sound and the much better seats means that it's an experience and people want to go. So you saw it happen over the course of 30 years with cinemas and now you're seeing exactly the same happening with retailing. Very interesting. But then what I want to ask is then you talk about the actual shots of the supermarkets, the retail spaces. What about the suppliers? And you've got people out there and people, again, who'd be listening and saying, I have a product. I've been trying to get it into supermarkets, been trying to do this. How do you stand out as a brand? How do you get yourself, in your opinion, into these supermarkets? Or do you not now go to retail? Do you just try and uh, go online? Where would you be? And if you had a product like Candykins and you were starting out, how would you do it? And what, what would you go about sort of starting off? Well, the first thing to say is it, it is difficult. Um, food retailing has created more millionaires than any other industry. And that's because if you can get a product and you can get it stocked in the big supermarkets, then you can get some pretty big volume. And through that, you can leverage to do a lot going forward. Just as you say, the first step and the hardest step is to get a listing anywhere, to get somebody to want to buy your goods and put it on your shelf. Now, the internet gives a great opportunity today in the way it didn't historically because uh, there are lots of um, uh, sites where you can go and put your products on, you can put them on Amazon, you can go and put them in all sorts of places to get your product out there. But just being on the internet isn't enough. People have to know about your product. There well, are yeah. millions of products. That's the thing. The different, the advantage of being in a supermarket is that, uh, you know, as a customer, you walk down the aisles and so you're looking left and right and you notice the products. People still want to touch and feel yeah. and experience it. Yeah. On the internet, you're going to the internet for a specific product right you're not going to be just browsing you already browsing through confectionery or uh fruit or whatever it is where in a supermarket you browse so i find it much harder now because not only is it hard to get a listing in these supermarkets even if you go online in on a, in a retail space online it's even harder to be seen so how do you stand out from the crowd well you have to have a usp you have to have something different uh, because there are millions of products. The advantage of being on a supermarket shelf, as you say, Jamie, is that um, 
typically 20,000 people a week will shop in a Waitrose branch. So you have the chance for 20,000 people walking up and down an aisle to see your product. And if you put your product on the end of an aisle, you'll probably get the majority of those 20,000. If it's in the middle of the aisle on the bottom shelf, you might get a fraction of that, but it will be within a category. It will be within the sweet category. To get 20,000 people online to go and look at your product is almost impossible it will cost you a fortune in marketing to be able to do that so even though the supermarkets i i suspect are challenging to deal with in terms of what they want and when they want it and how they want it it is a great way to get your product in front of people apart from that um uh, the innocent boys when they set up um they went to a festival and they set up a stall on a festival um they tried to find ways to build their brand and an awareness of their brand but ultimately, you have to have something that's different. It has to have a USP. The packaging has to stand out. There needs to be a degree of personality to what you're doing. But it's not easy. It's really not easy. I think also, um, you know, one of the, the topics at the moment, and I really hate getting into it because first I know not much about it. But second, I think we've got to approach it is Brexit. And the problem with trading uh in a foreign country or having a supplier in a foreign country, is that going to be a big problem for uh, consumers or suppliers in the UK, do you think? Well, it depends on the outcome of the Brexit vote. Uh, if we have a no deal, it will certainly be less straightforward than if we have a, a deal where we have a, a managed transition from the world we know today to the new world in the future. Um, and there are all kinds of complications which everybody's heard on the news a million times now about the ease with which goods can move and whether there's a tariff on goods and whether that makes them more expensive, et cetera, et cetera, all of which there's a degree of truth to, but all of which would be mitigated to one extent or another by a government over the course of time. So if I was setting up a business or a food business, I wouldn't be overly worried about Brexit per se. People are still going to eat. Um the, level, the, the, the playing field is level for every food producer. They're all going to have the same disruption. They're all going to have the same cost increases. Um, and it's more about getting the fundamentals right about the quality of your product, the price of your, your product. And through quality and price, you get to value. So are you better value than somebody else? How do you manage that? Um, so yes, Brexit will have an impact if it's delivered in a particular way. Um, but I suspect a lot of businesses now have already figured out how they can circumvent the worst of that. And you worked in politics, Mark. So after you left the Waitrose role, that's where you went next. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, so I had 34 years in the John Lewis partnership, 10 years running Waitrose, which I enjoyed. I was deputy chairman of John Lewis as well. Uh, I was deputy chairman of Channel 4 TV as well, which I hugely enjoyed. Um, but then when I retired from the partnership, David Cameron asked me to join the government um, as Minister of State for Trade and Investment, and I joined uh, four months before the referendum. So I had four months when I travelled the world promoting British business, and then after the referendum, uh, Theresa May appointed me to be Trade Policy uh, Minister. And so my job were, there was to make sure that all of the current trade deals the UK had with different countries around the world uh, continued, that we set up working groups with countries that the UK didn't have trade deals with, like um, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the USA. Um, and uh, I did that for about a year and a quarter after the referendum. And how different was that experience? I mean, working at 
top yeah. level within corporate businesses can be quite political, but obviously, you know, being Bull- at the heart of it, how, <laughs> how was that? I just wonder, how many flights were you on a week, do you think? Oh, I, I travelled non-stop. Did so, you really? Were so you- um, I, I think I visited 35 countries in... Seven months. I went to every single, or I, I went to virtually every country, or I had meetings with every minister and government that the UK currently has trade deals with through the EU. And my job was to say to those people, you know, in in a post Brexit era, era, we want our trade uh, deals to be no less good than they are today. And and they were very amenable to that. They were very acceptable to that, accepting of that. And we had to then find a way of doing it. So I, I travel continually. Politics is completely different to business. I mean, anybody who says, oh, just put business people in it, it'll sort it out. Um, the, the way you have to think about it is if you if you manage, pretend you manage a supermarket chain. Uh, so you run Tesco. And every morning what happens is that the um, the CEOs of all the other supermarkets uh, sit you down and quiz you publicly over what you're doing and how you're doing. And so your opposition uh, gives you a, a duffing over. And then when they finish with you, the press come in and the press say, why didn't you do better yesterday? And this has gone wrong and that's gone wrong and what are you going to do about it? And when the press have finished with you, um, the NGOs come in, so... Um, I don't know, save the children, whoever. And they say, well, why aren't you doing all these things that we think you should be doing? And after you've done all of that, you get to do your day job. <laughs> and so the, the scrutiny is of a different order. Yeah. And to get things through, you have to compromise. You have to be flexible. You do in business. In, in business, you negotiate. And if you get to a point in the negotiation when you realise you can go no further, you either have to accept that or you have to walk it away, walk away. And so in politics, you, it's exactly the same. Instead of negotiating around uh, products, you're negotiating around laws and ideas and principles. So in that sense, it's the same, but the scrutiny is um, is of a different order and the challenges of a different order. Um, and so it, it's, it's not comparable. I think that my time in the John Lewis partnership equipped me pretty well, actually, and I did enjoy it. Um, Cameron asked me to do two years, so I did just slightly less than two years, and I did that because... I'd done all I felt I could do at that time and they needed somebody to take it through for longer. So I would recommend it, but I, I wouldn't recommend it on the basis that if you've been successful in business, you can go into politics and you can change it to be the same. It just isn't structured that way. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
But Mark, with you, I keep going back to that same thing. Your curiosity, your curiosity is that the right word? How <laughs> did I say? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's so. it, isn't it? Where you've gone from uh, John Lewis partnership to politics to being an author. Um, that, and then you've gone into the tech world. And what is so interesting is that I think this is from your childhood where your father was one of these people who's very fair wanted to help people was very honest was very loving to his family and was all about that and helping people and I think that's what you've done throughout so you've gone into engaging works now your new business your new tech company which is about happiness in the workplace um and Ed and I did the test the other day you brought it around and we worked out that apparently we are incredibly upset in the workplace (laughs) (laughs) so no we were incredibly happy um why why are you so adamant and why are you such an activist in helping people and wanting to, people to be happy and uh, encouraging people to bring engaging works into the workplace? So having worked in a John Lewis partnership for three decades, a business that believes that its supreme purpose is the happiness of people that work there and sees commercial benefit... I think that if people are happy and engaging the workforce, it's better for them. I think it's better for their organisation. And I think it's better for society. In 2011, I went to the Occupy protest outside St. Paul's. uh, And if you remember, people camped outside St. Paul's for five months over the winter. And I was intrigued as to why people were there. And in summary, they were there because they didn't feel the system was working. They didn't feel that... Uh, Their pay was moving forward, but they felt costs were going up. They saw their jobs being uh, taken by technology. They felt that people were coming in and being paid less and that that was suppressing their wages. Uh, They couldn't get uh, their kids onto the housing ladder. Um, They didn't like what was happening with student debt. They didn't feel they could get into the hospitals and schools. So what I saw there was a, a whole host of unrest with the way that society was working. And people didn't feel to me to be happy or engaged with either their employment or with the way society was working. So I wrote a book called Fairness for All. And in Fairness for All, I set out the principles and in practice how the John Lewis Partnership achieved a a happier and a more engaged workforce. But I quote loads of other companies. I talk about Virgin and Unipart and lots of other businesses. And having done that, I decided that what I wanted to do was to build a website, Engaging Works, where anybody could go free of charge. They could measure their workplace happiness in a test that took seven minutes. And at the end of it, it would tell them around six areas where they were or weren't happy compared to people that looked like them. So their age, their gender, their job, their industry. And those six areas are reward and recognition, information, feeling empowered, uh, well-being, uh, a sense of pride and job satisfaction. So I built that and I started to get thousands of people going to take the test. But on the back of it, what was clear is that some people weren't happy uh, in some aspects of their job. And so uh, part of um, what we do at the end of the test is we give people advice and say, look, if you're not happy about the information you're receiving at work, these are some of the things you might choose to do. But then from there, it was clear that people were just in the wrong job. 
Not necessarily the wrong company, but certainly the wrong job. And so I built a, a career developer. So you can go and take a test and it will tell you what kind of career is best for you. I've got a free, uh, it's called MBTI, it's a personality test, but it tells you what kind of personality you are and therefore what kind of roles are going to suit you best. Um, so having done all of that, I then thought what I'm going to try to do is to find mentors for people who need mentors when they're starting out, perhaps as entrepreneurs. So I've now got over 500 people that we match free of charge so experienced people with people that want to be mentored. We ask them what they're looking for and we match those up on the site. And then we built a site for jobs. So if you do want a new job, we'll try and find the perfect job match for you. And then I thought, well, do you know what? People need advice. So I built a global hub where anybody can go and they can say, look, I need advice about this. Or you can post jobs or you can post an event. So if you're a, an entrepreneur and you've got a new food product and you want to display it, you can go on there and you can post an ad saying, I've got this new product. There's an event in X, Y, and Z. Please come along. So I've tried to build a platform that just helps people be happier and more fulfilled at work. And so my goal is to just try and make the world and a little that, bit happier. Mark, is, is all available on Engaging all, Works? All on Engaging Works, and it's all free. But I, I had a statistic, right? This could be so wet, far off. I love Ed's just eyes as well. Here, Here we go. Brace yourself, Mark. I heard that in America, something like 80 or 72% of people in the workplace don't enjoy their jobs. And, so, and furthermore, something like 35% of those people actually have a negative impact on the business. Is that true or false, in your opinion? So... For Engaging Works, we produce research and I write every month uh, for one of our newspapers uh, on that research. 37% of people uh, going to work every day uh, feel anxious and depressed about going to the job that they're doing. 83% of people leave their job, uh, even in great companies, because they do not have a good relationship with their line manager. So that That's crazy. That statistic is is nuts. It, it, it is nuts. At any one time, uh, around uh, 60% of people would leave their job for a 5% pay increase if they were approached. <laughs> really? really? A really. 5%? 5%. I'm open to offers, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's because when I talk about all the aspects that make up a happy workplace, pay is one aspect. But recognition is another. On on average, people are thanked once every four and a half months for doing something You'd well. You told us this actually when we took the test, and it stu stuck in my head. I can't believe that. But Ed, if you have to, okay, if you have to think about it as MD of Candy Kittens, uh, how many times do you remember? And you probably do, but how many times do you remember to say someone, "Do you've done a good job?" You know, and I do. You know, and I, as as one of the founders, and you know, not there every single day in the office. I forget. I forget to say well done. And I forget that because I think what happens is as a managing director, you expect people to do the job. But in fact, all they want is to have the validation of being thanked or, or being told they have a good work. So how many times do you... That I'm much more aware of in the last sort of six to 12 months. You know, we've put a lot more effort, as you know, into culture and thinking about how much people love working for us. And I think that that's... Something in the early days, you're so sort of, uh, what's the word, kind of head down, just getting stuff done. You're kind of foot to the pedal. You want to just go for it. You, you don't really, or at least I didn't, um, and I'm happy to admit, didn't really think about whether or not people behind me were enjoying it. It was just kind of... You become a buffalo. You're just, you're just charging straight um, ahead. So yeah, now I guess the, the benefit of having a bigger team and a bit more time affords you the, 
the time to think about that and make sure that everybody in the team is actually enjoying it. But Mark, if you had to say then, if there was an equation, you know, you've done, you've been in all sorts of different business. You've, you've done retail, you've done politics, you've been all that, as I said, you've done in tech. Is there an equation to starting a business? Uh, it's very political of you to wait <laughs> and pause. <laughs> no, no, in, in the sense that you've got to have a real passion to want to do it. It's not easy. You don't open your doors, whatever you're doing, and become virgin. It takes years. It takes years and years and years. If you look at Ocado, um, you know, they started 19 years ago, but it's only in the last two years that they've had any kind of acclaim for what they've done. And uh, Tim Steiner has this quote that they're the um, uh, the longest ever overnight success story. Um, <laughs> I don't think people understand just how hard it is and how much you have to put on the line if you want to start your own business. You may be incredibly lucky. You may strike it out of the ballpark first go. You might walk into a supplier and they might say, this is the best product we've ever seen. Away you go. But the chances are you're going to have financial challenges. You're going to have challenges around your team. You're going to have challenges around your products and how it's delivered. You've got to persuade people to want to take your product and stick with you. They're not things for the faint-hearted. You, you've got to be a stayer and you've got to want to do it. I, I think having a sense of purpose at work is one of the most important things. And when I've talked to both of you previously, you've both talked about having a sense of purpose, wanting to do something that's good and makes a difference. I think if you've got that, it gives you that sort of extra edge. Definitely. And you talk there, Mark, about challenges. What's the biggest challenge you faced in your career so far? I th I think probably thinking about what I was going to do after uh, I left Waitrose. I'd been there for 34 years and um, it's sort of a big thing leaving. And so I, I took on loads of jobs. I was going to chair a food business and I was offered a chance to become a trustee of the British Museum and uh, I was writing so uh, a number of my books and I joined the cabinet office as a, an NED. So I was kind of collecting all these things I was going to do. And then Cameron came in and off, asked me to be trade minister, so they all had to go. But when I stepped down from doing the job in trade, I very consciously said, I'm now going to take a year to do nothing and really work out what I want to do with the next 20 years of my life. One of the bits of advice I give people on the Engaging Works website about career development is think of your career in um, three years and 24 years. So think about what you want to do for the next three years and then think about how that builds you to where you want to be in 24 years' time. So I'm now why, trying why to think 24? about... Well, because, well, it really comes from that conversation I had with graduates at Waitrose when they okay, started at yeah. the age of 21, and they all said by 45 they wanted to be the managing director. Yeah. And so I was saying, look, it's great to have a, a plan for 24 years, but just really think about what you want to do for the next three years and how that builds towards your goal. And so I, I've done the same in my mid-50s, and um, I took a year out. I now chair Fairtrade. Uh, I always wanted to um, uh, chair a... Uh, a charity. I previously chaired the grocery industry charity and I chaired uh, the Prince's Countryside Fund for the Prince of Wales and I chaired business in the community. So I wanted to chair a charity. So I now do that with Fairtrade. Uh, I grow uh, perry pears at home to make traditional sparkling perry. So that's my kind of farming thing. Sounds like moonshine. <laughs> <laughs> I just hope it doesn't taste like it. Um, 
So I do that. I, I write my book. So I write children's books and I write business books. So I, I wanted to find some time to do that. I sit in the House of Lords, which I come up to London to do when the House uh, is sitting. And I enjoy still being part of uh, politics and seeing what's uh, going on. And then I wanted to do something for myself. I discovered that I wanted to build a business which helped people be happier at work. So it took me a year to discover that's what I wanted to do with the next phase of my life. And I think quite often people just bounce in and bounce out. So finding that time to really think, this is what I want to do. And then when you decide what you want to do, you do it. You do it with your whole heart. That, that's so great because it goes back to the beginning what you said when I spoke about after university you have that lost year and people panic they go god I've got to do something and they fall into the wrong thing and as you said they fall into that you know what 82% who would leave whatever the statistic gave us 82% who would leave if they got a 5% you know pay rise or the 38% who are anxious or depressed going to work because they fall into the wrong category for you how would you define success um, so on that wasted year, I, I, I don't think any time is wasted because even if you go to do a job that you don't enjoy, you've worked out what you don't enjoy. Sure. And I think you learn a lot from the managers you work with. So everybody I worked with, and I worked with so many managers, I saw things that they did which I thought were really good. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do that when I'm a manager. And I saw things they did that were less good. And I thought, I'm really going to try hard not to do that. So every job you do, there is an opportunity to learn from it and think about when I'm in a position to manage other people, I'm never going to make them feel the way I feel now about something that's happened. So one of the things I talk about in career development is, is actually one, three, 24. One is every day write a diary about the things that you thought were good and the things that you will never do again. Then every three years, have a plan about where you want to be at the end of three years. And then after 24 years, that's your kind of master global plan. Um, so what was the question again, Jamie? How do you define success? Uh, so I probably would define success at a, in a very different way now at the age of 58 than I would at the age of 25. At the age of 25, I thought success was uh, being married with children, being happy, having a nice home, uh, having a fast car, uh, earning a lot of money and having a senior job. Um, I now have recognised that success is about being with people that you enjoy, enjoying the journey with them. Um, you don't actually need much. A good bowl of pasta and a nice glass of red wine is frankly enough. Um, I think that um, success comes from helping others. Um, Socrates said that um, there are two levels of happiness. Uh, the lower level of happiness is what you get or what you feel if you... Um, uh, succeed. So you buy something new, you win, you have power. But he said the higher level of happiness comes from altruism, doing the right thing, helping others. And I think that's right. So the success I feel now is uh, in some sense when I publish a new book and it's out there and it sells, I think that's great. For a moment or two, that feels great. But every day knowing that people can go to Engaging Works, do a happiness test, and reflect on whether they are happy at work and I can help them be happier at work, that gives me far more pleasure. Um, at the start of my book, uh, Fairness for All, uh, there's a, an inscription for my wife, Judith, and it says, um, uh, I thank her for teaching me that happiness comes from appreciating what you have 
not what you'd like to have. And I think there's a point, hopefully, that people reach where they think, you know what, I'm happy with what I've got. I'm happy with my business partner. I'm happy with my business. I'm happy with the way the world's treating me. And so you look at it through that lens. And what I've learned, and I've been incredibly lucky, I've had the most amazing business career and I've been lucky in my private life as well, but I am just genuinely grateful for what I have. So for me, that's success, getting to the point where uh, I feel very lucky to have what I have. Incredibly inspiring. Like honestly, that that little speech you should drop the podcast mic after that. that was <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, Ed, and yeah, as Jamie says, I think that's really a, a really interesting insight on what success means, and hopefully chimes with quite a few of our listeners. Mark, we ask every guest at the end of our podcast, and we have sadly got to the end. <laughs> what would be your choice of business if you had to wake up tomorrow and start something completely new? Obviously, you have engaging works going on, but. If you had to start a completely new business tomorrow morning, what would it be? So uh, so the point of Engaging Works is to help people be happier at work. Uh, my next plan is to build uh, a genuinely kind uh, a version of Facebook um, because I think we need to do more to help families uh, come together for families and close friends to celebrate together, um, to record memories, to keep memories. Um, so the next thing I'm going to do is to build uh, an alternate to Facebook in the same way that to some extent uh, engaging work is an alternate to LinkedIn and WhatsApp. I also think it'd be pretty good that, um, you know, the UK started to produce some social media that was wholesome. So I've absolutely resolved on the site. There'll be no advertising. We won't sell your data. I just think it's time to think about it in a different way and just help people live happier and more inspiring lives. Hey, one one question. If I sent you a friend request on that, would you accept me? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Mark Price, thank you so much for being on Move. Uh, So inspiring, so wonderful, uh, amazing. Thank you so much. Ed, how are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. Inspired after that. I just, I, I, Mark was always so great from us from the beginning. Um, and so then to have him on the podcast, it's kind of a weird kind of serendipity type thing. I feel like we've just kind of had a conversation with our dad or, <laughs> you know, an older family member. He's kind of like the, the head of the family. Yeah, but also just so caring and just looks out for us. He's such is... a good guy. And there's loads to learn from Mark. Really, he's been there and done it. He's There's not much in the world of business that Mark hasn't seen from, you know, journey starting out as a youngster with his dad right through to being in the house of lords you know this guy has really seen it all and not only that what we like to do on the podcast is we like to pick out a couple of things that we think really inspired us and hopefully inspires the listeners and for me it's about culture creating the best culture within a business um he spoke about how a lot of people aren't happy i had this amazing statistic that uh, something like 13% of americans actually like their job 13% 16% of americans are doing something called sleepworking which is where they just sleep and they're just doing it and it's just going through and 20 odd percent of americans actually dislike their job and have a negative impact on the business if people in your business are not enjoying their work, they're going to have a negative impact. Mark is all about creating a happy culture within the workplace because then you get better results. Create a happy culture within the business. 
hundred percent. I mean, the, th- the the emphasis that Mark puts on looking after the team, I think, is something that that we try hard to do at Candy Kittens. It's not always possible, but absolutely, it's the best way to get the most out of people. Not only I'm going to go on and say more. You know, more people would like to be validated in the workplace than get a pay rise. That's crazy, right? People think that work is all about making money and just getting as as rich as you possibly can. It's not. It's about feeling that you have a purpose. It's about going out there and actually doing what you love every single day. And if you create that for your employees, then you've got the perfect business model. Absolutely. We're definitely going to be using the Engaging Work Survey with our team. Um, and, and hopefully there's lots that we can learn and how we can do better at that. We know we're not perfect, but we'll be putting lots more effort in having spoken to Mark. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for listening. Honestly, it really does mean a huge amount. And we also hope today's podcast has inspired you to move towards your dream or passion. Now, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a comment. And if you'd like to get in touch, please email us at move at moveclub.co.uk or follow us on Instagram at moveclub. Until next time, this is Move. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.